This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today's show is called Scenes from the Climate Era. We will go to the Colombian Amazon and to India to hear from climate scientists on how extremes of wet and dry are intensifying. Dr. Joelle Gerges is our guide, and she and top journalist Michael Green really get the best out of the IPCC scientists. The human side, the exhaustion and sickness they experience makes their efforts to warn us to get a grip all the more poignant. But first we'll talk to Carissa Licciardello, who is directing a new play in Sydney called Scenes from the Climate Era. Here is the writer David Finnegan, imagining what the end of the climate era might look like. All of us alive today were born in an era where the planetary system is destabilizing. We live in a world that grows more unstable and chaotic the older we get. So the same will be true for the generation born after ours. When we look into our future, we see frightening storms blotting out the horizon. But there will be a generation, our grandchildren or our grandchildren's grandchildren, for whom the world will grow more stable rather than less. They'll be born in the heart of the storm, but in a world where humanity has passed through the worst. They'll live in an age of high greenhouse gas concentrations, but they'll see carbon dioxide in the atmosphere begin to tick down rather than up. They'll experience the whiplash of extreme weather, but the worst of the shocks will be lessening rather than growing. For that generation, record-breaking temperatures will once again be newsworthy rather than constant. The word unprecedented won't be worn out from overuse. And most of all, they'll grow up knowing that the world of their old age will be calmer than the world of their youth. Now, of course, speculating about an end date to climate change is an arbitrary exercise. Anticipating how future historians will describe our era is pure storytelling. But stories are how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of ourselves. So one reason that we draw these dividing lines in our own personal histories is to create space for us to grow, 
We mark the end of an era in our lives and we give ourselves permission to become someone new. We farewell an old job, an old partner, an old home, and we change. We can change. So one day, maybe centuries from now, humanity will decide that we've moved on from the climate era. Historians will draw a line in the sand and declare that we've passed into a new age. In this new era, people will look back on their ancestors in the early 21st century with sympathy and contempt, and they'll look forward to the future, and they'll be ready to change. And what kind of creature will humans become when we allow ourselves to become something new? And now here's Carissa. Scenes from the Climate Era is a play by David Finnegan, soon opening in Sydney at the Belvoir Street Theatre. It's made up of 50 small plays about life, love and making money in a period that seems to have a terrible future. It's the climate era that we're all very familiar with now. More than the climate emergency, it's just the climate reality that we live in. And one of the stories features a frog. I have the director, Carissa Licciardello, with me to describe scenes from the climate era. Welcome, Carissa. Uh, tell us how you stitched it all together. So David, when he initially presented the play to Belvoir, just sent us, I think, about 20 scenes um, in no particular order. And he was like, what do you guys think about this? And we read them and each one transported you to a completely different time, place, scenario, different people. We had scientists talking to each other. We had friends sitting at a pub together. We had and um, a man sitting with a little frog, as you've mentioned, a very kind of beautiful scene in the play. And we just were totally uh, fascinated by every scene and, and how it took you somewhere different each time. So that's kind of where it started. And then David kind of kept adding content and kept finding different scenes. And we kind of worked together over a number of months to go, well, what is the journey of the show? It's not going to be one story that we're following. So it kind of has to have a different shape to it. So how we stitched it together was kind of going, let's, let's take the audience on a journey from uh, about coming to terms with what it is to live in this era. So we kind of started it with denial and then maybe we moved through looking for solutions to despair and anger um, and, and hoping for hope at the end. So that became the kind of framework that we structured the whole thing through. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing it myself. It's on listeners from the 27th of May till the 27th of June. So David Finnegan, the writer, um, he sent me a message to say that you're an extraordinary theatre maker. And I think oh. <laughs> he has met many scientists who are sending us ever more frightening warnings. I wonder how, how will audience, audiences walk away from this play? It could be that they become paralysed and overwhelmed. Mm. I think what is extraordinary about what David's created is that you never sit in any one place for very long. So you do kind of, some of the things he presents you with are horrifying, terrifying. They make you feel despair, but others also make you feel that, oh, there are these new possibilities opening up as well. And a lot of what he's put in there also makes you laugh. Like he's got a fantastic sense of humour. Like some of his plays have been called like, Kill Climate Deniers. He had a play called 44 Sex Act. So that kind of gives you an idea of the tongue-in-cheek tone that a lot of David's work has. And so I think that means that people leave feeling kind of 
strangely exhilarated by his work or certainly when we've been testing it, people coming to watch the the show so far, they feel kind of galvanised by it and uh, energised because they come out going, it's horrifying and um, it's funny and it's beautiful and there's so much to hope for and, wow, the world is going to change in ways we don't know. So um, I think you leave with a little bit of everything, which is kind of ideal, I think. Yeah. Well, I do I've done this climate action radio show for 10 years, more than that even. And it's it's the same sort of thing. It's a patchwork of all different activists mm. taking climate action. There's so many different aspects of it from Bangladesh to, you know, where they're really on the front foot. You know, they're very proud of what they're doing in Iceland to here to anti-coal all and and pro-renewables. There's so many aspects of it. I think it's exciting too. It's an exciting time to be alive. Mm. And I hope audiences don't come away feeling paralyzed and feel that no one's doing anything and one mm. of the actors abby lee lewis said you can't really talk about climate change without having an indigenous voice and i wonder how does her perspective in large this experience that we all now have of living in the climate era mm. one of the things that david has talked about a lot and i think a lot of people especially trying to make theater about climate are grappling with is that humans think in really small time scales and time spans and plays are often you know maybe they're only um in, in real time over a couple of hours or like a year in life or something like that but when we're thinking about climate we need to be able to kind of zoom out and go into a much larger time scale to really get any sense of what's happening and I think that's a big part of what the First Nations perspective in this work does for us is it takes us back 6,000 years and goes just remember that outside of this little period that we're in right now and we kind of have our heads in, when you zoom out, things have been happening for a lot longer. First Nations people have been dealing with climate for a lot longer and um, they have technologies and systems and um, machines that they have created that don't look like our machines but are highly sophisticated and have been around for a long time and that there are ways of thinking and solutions in First Nations knowledge that we could potentially take forward with us. That's part of David's thesis as well in the play. So, yeah, it is, um, it's just one of many perspectives in the play, but it's kind of a crucial, a crucial one in terms of getting us all to zoom out and see, see things on that larger timescale. Yeah, that's one of, I've been trying to get the Indigenous voice, First Nation voice onto the radio in, from various angles. And I'm really hopeful that the voice to Parliament will, in fact, bring much mm. more of that voice into what we do, how we react, because so much of what we do is laggardly. But um, mm. David Finnegan sent me a message and he said to ask you this question. Um, and I've heard something about SUVs. Now, I have noticed around <laughs> Sydney where I live, there are these huge cars. People seem to have cars that are too big for the road, and I don't like any kind of cars. So there's a tension between the sort of person who just lusts after one of these new cars or any kind of SUV or private jet or whatever they lust after. Advertisers tell them what to want. But um, there's a tension between that sort of person and the kind of person like me who hates all of it. And David said to mm. ask you, what will audiences learn about disabling? <laughs> <laughs> so David has this excellent scene early on in the play, which is uh, kind of delivered with a bit of a wink in the eye to the audience, which is is just, I don't want to give it away too much because it's pretty, it's a pretty good surprise. But um, <laughs> there's, a, there's somebody that basically speaks to the audience and gives them a very, very simple way to wreak mass havoc if they really want to get 
involved in climate <laughs> activism. And he kind of, he gives you a very simple little tool that you'd find in your kitchen, um, very small little tool. And he says, with this, basically you could, we could get rid of SUVs from our cities. And here's the really simple, really easy way to do it on your way out of the theatre tonight as you head home. So, and that is the second scene of the play. So it kind of sets up pretty early the 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 tone of it, which is um cheeky, but it's got a bit of that energy to it of hey, we we yeah. could all do something about this tonight if we really wanted to. Yeah, so, I'm liking it more yeah. and more because it sounds like there's such a variety, and that's my feeling about the yes. here. We need everyone to know about it and to do something about it, and we need to deal with it in our heads and in our hearts too, because we all have to live private lives yes. as well. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. I think what you said before about patchwork is yeah. so right as well. Like there is no one story about the climate era. There is no one conclusion about living through climate change. There's many things all at once. And I think part of what the play does is help us come to terms with that, that there's multiple realities going on that we have to kind of come to terms with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really i have looked at a few little things that David Finnegan has written and audio and video YouTube listeners you can listen look up just David Finnegan and find some of his work. And I think he's a very deep thinker. And theatre mm. and film are definitely the way to touch people in a memorable way. Mm. But is it about climate action, do you think? Is the play about climate action? Yeah. I I think I think it's one of the many um terms of the kaleidoscope of the play. There's actually there's a few scenes that speak to activism, whether it's on that kind of tiny do it yourself on, on your way home tonight. Um, version of activism through to we have glimpses of protests or glimpses of people taking different kinds of action or calling for different actions so it's definitely kind of peppered throughout the play but it sits in that larger context of there's also people at a dinner party together talking about the climate and there's a couple trying to figure out whether they should have a baby and there's scientists looking at new technology and wondering if it's going to solve their problems or create bigger problems so um yeah it's definitely a it's a smattering through but inside the collage of many different um aspects of living in the climate era what about the political system does it take on how we mm. deal with that <laughs> it does there's another quite funny bit in the play um that deals with that particularly looking back at the past because the play kind of goes you know, the climate isn't just a crisis that's on its way towards us. It's an era that we're living in and the time that we live in now is defined by climate change, is David's thesis, um, and kind of goes off this idea of the Anthropocene as well and so other that, that others have kind of um, spoken about. But it so as part of that, it kind of looks back a little bit into the past and into how we got where we are now um, and part of that is about the kind of political ramifications of that but I think it's it's on the whole most of its focus is between human people in kind of everyday situations as well as a lot of extraordinary climate science because that's one of the things that's great is that David is so engaged with climate science mm. and so everything in the play is based on real climate science happening now so even scenes where he's kind of imagining the future it's not sci-fi it's always like that technology that we're going to say is going to happen in 2040, it's being developed now or it's already happening in this part of the world. So I think, for yeah, for people who are engaged with climate, there's also heaps that David brings in that sense. Yeah. Um, but that, that's more the realm that it sits in, I think. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, Chris, I'm sorry I have to say goodbye now because um, <laughs> we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to you later on when the play's been launched. And I'm wondering, 
for Melbourne listeners, are you hoping to take it on a tour or have you been invited anywhere else? We are looking at a little tour at the moment next year um, and we would love to go to Melbourne if there were audiences for it. And I'm sure there would be because um, we're all all thinking about this stuff all the time and this is quite a fun way to engage with it. But, yeah, not just yet, but TBC, we'd, we'd love to be in Melbourne. Okay, so listeners, the play is on in Sydney at the Belvoir Street Theatre, 27th of May to 27th of June, and it's called Scenes from the Climate Era. We've been talking to the director, Carissa Licciardello. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 03 9419 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report by the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. In late July 2019, Paula Arias was in Bogota, the capital of Colombia, to give a speech at a conference on risk management and climate change. This is some of the audio of an interview that she gave in the morning. You can hear the hum of the conference in the background. Paolo is a professor at the University of Antioquia and she studies how water moves through the atmosphere and becomes rainfall. It was during the IPCC process and I was giving a conference in the framework of risk management due to extreme events. That afternoon it started to rain and when Paola was giving her talk it was really coming down. It was in a hotel close to the lobby like you you could really hear rainfall falling so a lot of precipitation, pretty intense precipitation. Suddenly there was a bang in the next room and the lights went out. The ceiling had collapsed. We were in that room in the morning So it it actually could have been a a disaster, you know, because there were like 200 people over there and the ceiling just fell. It's a crazy story. You actually said there were a lot of firemen in the audience. And and so like the first thing they did was actually go check their own ceiling to make sure that their ceiling wasn't going to collapse too. No internet, no mics. There were no projectors at that point. So I thought, okay, we are going to stop. We are not going to to do it. And then people asked me, no, please do it. We can do it. So I did like a kind of a cappella, (laughs) a cappella conference. I couldn't show any animation, any type of image, but only talking in the dark, actually, because it was like 5 p.m. So it was starting to get dark. So what, what was your message in that presentation? What were you saying about extreme events? I was trying to say that the water cycle is changing, that the water cycle that we have now is pretty different from the water cycle that we had 10, 20 or 30 years ago. So for us, it's pretty important to understand what happens with extreme precipitation because these type of events could become more frequent and severe in our region. You're listening to Fear and Wonder, Brought to you by The Conversation. I'm Dr Joel Gerges. I'm a climate scientist and a lead author for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and I'm a friend of Joelle's. And in this podcast, we're exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. I think Fear and Wonder is the right name for this podcast because it's both terrifying and really fascinating doing this work at this moment in time when the stakes just couldn't be higher. So this episode is really interesting because it's the part of the report that I actually worked on, which was looking at the water cycle. And it's the first time in the IPCC's history that we had a dedicated chapter that looked at water in all of its forms. Okay, so we're all about rain today, big rain. So if we're talking about how climate change will play out for the vast majority of people around the world, it's going to be a shift in the monsoon rains. So we're talking about changes in rainfall patterns and how they influence things like droughts and floods. That's why I love that story from Paola that we just heard. She's talking about this flash flood, the impacts of extreme rainfall, and she was right there in the middle of it as she was talking about the risk of it. So today, of course, we're travelling to Colombia and South America with Paola, but also to India with Krishna and Raghavan. And we're talking about the monsoon. Is it coming or going? And why? So, Joelle, we left off the last episode hearing about the heat waves and then the extraordinary bushfires in Australia in 2019-2020. That's right. Australia just been through its hottest and driest year on record. And then, of course, something else came right along just after that, that small matter of the global pandemic, which keeps going and going. But for us here in Australia, there was another thing that happened at the same time. In March 2020, it started to rain. So finally, the the big drought here in Australia started to ease the, the deficits. And the first La Nina really kicked off in spring 2020. And then we've actually had that string of wet years to now. We've gone from one extreme of the water cycle, mm. which is drought, into like flooding rains. What is going on there? In and Australia, this is. This is in Australia, but this is the pattern, right? This pendulum between precipitation extremes is, is you know, the wet gets wetter and the dry gets drier. So it, it, it's just that the system keeps just fluctuating between these extremes and so that pattern will intensify. Okay, so I think first things first, Joel. if we have an episode about the water cycle, then my first question is, what is the water cycle? That's actually a really good question. The water cycle describes the physical processes that move water all around the planet. So water evaporates from the ocean and land surfaces and also from vegetation. It's carried all over the Earth in atmospheric circulation as water vapour, and then it condenses to form clouds and then precipitates out over the ocean and the land as either rain or snow. Can you tell me about the kind of scientists who study the water cycle, Joel? Oh, yeah, I sure can. They're a very detail-oriented group of people. So the water cycle chapter was one of the the chapters that deals with one of these really nitty-gritty you know, physical processes. So we're talking about the microphysics of how clouds form, how rain forms, you know, the detail is really off the hook. And it was a really interesting chapter to be involved in, actually. But we're talking about a very meticulous group of people here. Okay, so this single-minded focus makes sense to me now, because when I asked both Paula and Krishnan about their cities, I don't know, I guess I was kind of curious about the people or the street life or the music or something. And, and they started explaining the rainfall patterns and how the rains relate to the orography, which is a word that I had to look up. Orographic barrier. Orography to the orography, we can have different convective systems that can... Yeah, sure. It's just a term that relates to the shape of the land surface, so features like mountains. 
they actually they have an ascent on the windward side and Pune is on the leeward side. Slightly so leeward what everyone's talking about here is actually links back to something we were talking about in episode three when we were learning about climate models because really understanding how regional climate change will play out is really influenced by these very local features of the local landscape, so the presence of mountains, that kind of thing. It sounds very complex. You know, one of the things we really need to crack when we're talking about climate change is, is what climate change is going to do to rainfall. And it's still quite uncertain, actually. And you might think, oh, surely we've got that sorted out. But as you're now learning, it's just that the models can't capture some of the, the, the key physical processes involved in cloud formation and the circulation of the, the ocean and the atmosphere. And as a result, you'll see a discrepancy between what the model simulates and, and what the observations say. So we have more confidence in our temperature projections than we do of rainfall. So you might see, for instance, if you look at the Australasian monsoon, it's 50-50 whether the monsoon will either strengthen or weaken. And that's because in that part of the world, there's so much really complex convection that happens because it's a very warm, it's equatorial. And so there's a lot of what they call mesoscale, like very regional climate patterns that set up there and we don't know because the models can't get it. The models can't get convection properly. So is there that same sort of uncertainty around all of the different monsoons around the world? Yeah, the monsoon system is actually really complex. These are these seasonal rainfall and wind patterns that are generated in the tropical regions of the world and they influence the water supply and agricultural production of more than two-thirds of the world's population. So the South Asian monsoon, which generates rainfall in countries like India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, is actually the most prominent monsoon system in the world. And our next guest happens to be one of the world's leading authorities on the South Asian monsoon. I'm Krishnan Raghavan. Presently, I'm the director of the Indian Institute of Tropical Meteorology. It's a research institute with particular focus on the monsoon. Krishnan was a coordinating lead author of the Water Cycle chapter, and that's actually a really important leadership role that involves coordinating, writing and revising a chapter. Yeah, he was saying to me that around the time that COVID hit, you were all responding to the thousands of comments on your draft report from scientists and governments all around the world, and his job was coordinating everyone to make sure that they all got addressed. My main focus was on Section 3, and Section 3 used to get the maximum number of comments <laughs> And uh, so, and that comes in a, a huge spreadsheet. Typically, each chapter gets about 3,000 plus comments for every round. Then you have to respond to each and every one of those comments. And it's all in track mode. People make changes. <laughs> and then versions are changing. So it's, it's a big, big, it's a nightmare. Now, now, uh, yeah, it really was a rat's nest of markup to deal with. <laughs> rat's nest. I remember this time. It was just so intense. And, you know, you'd just be like, oh, can you just do these 300 comments? And in the middle of doing everything else, you know, and, and because it was so, you change one word and everyone freaks out. So it's, yeah, it's a flashback. There's such an extraordinary contrast between like the planetary scale of climate change and the stakes of the issue. And then the kind of mundanity and the very relatable desktop struggle of actually putting the chapter together. The group dynamics becomes very important. And we periodically have meetings, Skype calls or Zoom calls. 
So one of those Zoom calls was in mid-2020. Cyclone Nisarga has intensified into a severe cyclonic storm, bringing with it heavy rain and wind speeds of up and to this, 110. This cyclone Nisarga forms in the Arabian Sea and enters Maharashtra in, this is in early June. Over 10,000 people, including some coronavirus patients, have been moved to safer locations. Now remember, Mumbai is also... I was at home and this was the time when the first COVID lockdown was in progress. The meeting was going on, on, online IPCC meeting. And Krishnan's trying to attend the meeting online. And then we hear this loud thunder and very strong winds. And then the power goes off. Then I'm trying to connect, but no, I've lost the connection. So I'm out of the meeting. Then what to do? I'm struggling. I asked my wife what to do. She told, okay, connect the hotspot, Wi-Fi hotspot. So there was a 10, 15 minutes break. I couldn't, I missed the meeting. I apologized and said, I'm really sorry, this tropical cyclone is going on. You did very well to continue to attend a meeting, even though there was a tropical cyclone. I was very committed and I was very passionate about the IPCC. As a first timer, it, it meant a lot to me. So the tropical cyclone Nisarga, it was the strongest cyclone to strike the state of Maharashtra since 1891. And just 10 days before that, we had a very super cyclonic storm in the Bay of Bengal, known as Amphan, around the end of May. And then we had this locust, lot of locust fly, which had affected the crop production. So people were talking, there was a joke telling that neither on land nor on sea or in water, you're safe. So it's a kind of compound effect because we have compound extremes. <laughs> so it's not only one, you know, it's climate change is happening, the impact of COVID is happening, the impact of tropical cyclones is happening. So what Christian is talking about here is a concept called compound extremes, and it makes it really difficult to respond to these multiple disasters at the same time. And this stretches emergency services and can cause major and lasting damage to societies for months or even years. And this IPCC report was the first time we did a really in-depth analysis of these compound extremes. And so is the idea that they're becoming more likely with climate change? Yeah, they're starting to escalate and it's just thinking about the interactions of these different types of events happening at the same time. I live in Melbourne and there's no monsoon here. So I'm, I'm curious about it. Can you describe what it's like when the monsoon begins? Uh, everybody is looking forward to the monsoon because it's very dry and hot and people are waiting and the winds are picking up. Monsoon clouds are, you know, they are well organized. The sky is overcast with thick clouds and very dark skies you can see. It is continuously raining and it can last for several days. And this is happening over a large region of the country. Almost 75% of the annual rainfall for most areas in the country is received during this time, during the southwest monsoon season, including Pune. For India, it is the lifeline because the Indian agriculture is mainly driven by the monsoon and rains. The fabric of the Indian culture, the Indian society, is very much woven into this, the monsoons. What are the impacts of climate change on the South Asian monsoon? Very, very good question. Fortunately, we have a data for more than 130, 140 years, right from 1871. So as the, as the climate... And okay, so at this point, Krishnan gave a very detailed and complex answer. He talked about 
the observations showing that the Indian Ocean and the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas had all warmed, and he described the differences in comparative rates of change in water vapour as opposed to precipitation, and then also the effect of slowing winds and the changes in land use and vegetation cover. But the crux of it was simple, and you said it earlier, Joel. So the paradigm is if you go with a simple global warming concept, you say, Wet gets wetter and dry gets drier. That's the kind of hypothesis. A warmer atmosphere is able to hold more moisture. The water holding capacity of the lower atmosphere increases by around 7% for every one degree of warming. And this causes heavier rainfall, which in turn increases flood risk. I find this kind of interesting, like like to be able to put that number on it. So, okay, we go up one degree and then that lower atmosphere can can hold 7% more water. Yeah, and so that's fundamental physics. And that's why, you know, what's playing out in terms of the observations is able to be kind of benchmarked against what we would expect just theoretically, but also by using models. And the other really important thing to mention here, I think, is that the oceans are also warming, especially at the surface. And this drives off both evaporation rates and the transport of moisture into weather systems, which makes wet seasons and wet events wetter than they usually would be. Can you explain the dry gets drier part to me? So temperatures are increasing and that means it's just more evaporation that's going on. So there's just droughts that happened, say, 100 years ago were happening in a climate that was one degree cooler than it is today. So that's what they mean when they say the dry gets drier because it's basically the evaporative demand is increased because of higher temperatures. But then shouldn't that rain again? Like whatever is evaporated rain comes down as rain. You might remember even just from really hot summer days or times where it becomes really humid, but then it doesn't actually condense to form rainfall. So there's a a lot of, you know, water vapour in the atmosphere, but it might not rain. But then when it does rain, it just absolutely goes for it. You're listening to Fear and Wonder, and we'll be back after a short break. Hello, I'm Tim Flannery, Chief Counselor of the Climate Council. We are proud sponsors of the Fear and Wonder podcast. The Climate Council is Australia's own independent evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. In 2013, the federal government abolished the Climate Commission, a trusted source of climate change information for the Australian public. But within days, thousands of everyday Australians chipped in to create a new independent and community-funded organisation, the Climate Council. Since then, we've gone from strength to strength. So what does the Climate Council do? We're now a high-impact organisation that's shaping a conversation on climate consequences and action at home and abroad. We advocate for climate policies and solutions that can rapidly drive down emissions based on the most up-to-date climate science and information. We do this in partnership with our incredible community, thousands of generous, passionate supporters and donors who've backed us from day one. If you want to be part of the change, join us. Visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. ACR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 
3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Okay, you're back with Fear and Wonder. This episode, we're finding out about the intensification of the water cycle with climate change. And Krishnan Raghavan has been telling us about how that affects the South Asian monsoon. But climate change isn't the only factor at play here, Joelle. Yeah, that's right. The complication here is the impact of another kind of human-caused pollution particles known as aerosols. That's things like black carbon. So we're kind of talking about the bits that make up smog. These are emissions of particulate matters. We are introducing in the atmosphere nitrates and sulfates due to various activities related to combustion, fossil fuel burning. If you introduce a load of aerosols in a, in a particular region, it is going to reduce the solar radiation substantially by scattering and absorption. So the sun hits the black carbon particle and it either gets kind of knocked off its course or it gets absorbed by the aerosol a bit. Yeah, that's right. Basically, we think of these sort of smog particles that are sitting in the atmosphere and it either gets scattered or it gets absorbed. And this can reduce the energy that's available for evaporation and the subsequent sort of precipitation, so the formation of rain. On the one hand, we have these greenhouse gases trying to warm the whole entire planet. And then we are also putting another driver. This is the aerosols which are trying to cool. So one thing Krishnan pointed out was that there's been much more smog emitted in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere. So those aerosol emissions really started to increase in Europe and North America in the 70s and 80s, and then started to increase in Asia from the 90s. And so these aerosols in the northern hemisphere, they have kind of masked the the global warming impact. And it has a profound influence on the monsoons. So if you cool the northern hemisphere relatively compared to the southern hemisphere, the rain belt actually shifts to the south. So in the monsoonal areas, the precipitation can be reduced. And this is which we are seeing. There's actually been a decline in rainfall over India since the 1950s, and many studies have attributed that to the effect of the aerosols in the northern hemisphere. So aerosols have, in fact, reduced warming in the northern hemisphere, and one effect has been reduced monsoon rainfall in India. Yeah, so ironically, when we start to clean up air pollution, we'll start to see an increase in temperatures for a while, which will alter some regional rainfall patterns as well. And so for the projections for the South Asian monsoon, what do you expect? Because there'll be changing ratios of those sort of particulate emissions and greenhouse gases. Absolutely. Because greenhouse gases have a very long lifetime and uh, aerosols can be regulated. They can be controlled. So one message is that if we are going to reduce aerosols in the northern hemisphere, and especially the aerosol emissions over China and South Asia, it is going to improve the monsoon precipitation. In the near term, you also have these effects of internal variability, like the the Pacific Decadal Oscillation or the IODs or the El Ninos. And if you have a large volcanic eruption, so they can also affect the monsoon precipitation. So when we reduce pollution, the South Asian monsoon will start to bounce back. But Christian is also saying that in the near term, say over the next 20 or so years, the biggest influence on the monsoon will be variations in natural climate variability rather than human-caused climate change. But thereafter, in the mid and long term, it's going to be more of increased precipitation under the influence of global warming. That's when the wet will get wetter because of climate change. 
If the heavy precipitation is going to increase the rainfall and flooding, that is a cause of concern. Inside a crowded hall, families that have been displaced by the floods in northern Pakistan... A lot of greenhouse gas emission is coming from mainly these very developed countries. So it's very important to bring down those emissions if we want to control warming and reduce the heavy precipitation events. Because that's a very direct consequence of the global warming. So while Krishnan was working on the IPCC report, he was also leading a team that developed India's first global climate model, and he was preparing a national climate change assessment report for the Indian government. These were very, very tough deadlines. So I had a frozen shoulder at that time. I was unable to move my right arm, and this pain was very severe. It it started in the middle of 2020 because I was continuously glued to the computer with my hand on the keypad. He also got cataracts at the same time. The cataract I had developed in 2020 and the COVID was going on. My eyes were watering and I thought I should go and have a surgery, but I was not getting time to. So pressure was too much. And uh, somehow with the support of, you know, family and friends and all, somehow we we could take this together. How are you doing at this point, Joel? This actually is a little window into the the toll it takes. We're being pushed to our absolute physical and like mental limits and under like COVID and this and that while trying to work. It was was just the most intense thing I've ever dealt with. And I think I'm still actually recovering from that time. So while Krishnan was at home struggling with his frozen shoulder, Paula Arias was in lockdown in her apartment in Medellin in Colombia. She got COVID. She went to hospital. She's still writing IPCC emails from hospital. We're like, stop, go away. It's okay. We'll take care of it. So for that year where you were stuck at home, how did you cope through the pandemic? I used to do Pilates in my place. I also used to listen a lot of music. One of my favorite bands is Tool. I also like, for instance, Queens of the Stone Age. I like Caius. I like Fumanchu. 2020 was a pretty weird year, not only in terms of the pandemic, but also on terms of climate. The year started with strong heat and and fires in Australia. Then we had these fires in in Siberia, and the Siberian area had like 30 degrees Celsius over the normal. It was something crazy. Then we had the hurricane season in the Atlantic in 2020 was the strongest in history. And also we had the Pantanal fires in in the Amazon. So of course, that year was really symbolic in many, many aspects, particularly climate change related aspects and the Pantanal fires were so important because also you have a lot of methane and CO2 emissions due to this burning. And also because it's a pretty important area in terms of biodiversity. So the Pantanal in South America is the largest tropical wetland in the world. And it's home to the highest concentration of wildlife on the continent. It includes animals like jaguars, toucans, and giant otters. 
is actually really significant because if you're talking about for a wetland to burn, that is just an extraordinary amount of heat and drying out of a landscape that is usually submerged. So it's, it's a, you know, it's one of these iconic events that happened globally that year, which was a real sign of the times and a real sign that the climate is just changing so rapidly. It is important to mention that in this region, it is kind of common to have fires during the transition season between the dry season and the wet season. But the government in Brazil, Bolsonaro government, encouraged land conversion in order to use the Amazon to provide agriculture and also to feed livestock in different regions of, of the world. So these fires were related to a lot of human activity that started those fires. And when you also have pristine conditions to enhance fires, then you have a, a deadly combination. And, and that's why it was so big. I think that Paola talking about the fires in the Pantanal is super relevant because she's talking about both the impact of climate change and land use in the cause of those fires. And similarly, both climate change and land use are big factors in what's happening with the South American monsoon. So the South American monsoon is mostly occurring in a huge part of the Amazon basin. So it has influence on different countries like northern Argentina, northern Chile, Bolivia, Peru, and Brazil. It is so, it's very important because it is connected to the wet season in the, in the Amazon, which is the largest tropical forest in, in the world. So what we have learned about the South American monsoon is that it's experiencing changes. The monsoon could start like in September, October, but now observations show that the monsoon is starting later in the year, so in October or even November. So it means that the Amazon forest is experiencing longer dry seasons. We also understand that floods in the Amazon have been occurring also with a higher frequency and intensity, and that those conditions could occur even stronger during this century if we continue increasing greenhouse gases emissions, but also land use is a pretty important component in the changes that are being observed in the Amazon. While there's still uncertainty in the projections for the South American monsoon, there's evidence to suggest a continuation of the warming trend that Paolo is describing. So there's this like long-term drying trend and increase in aridity. Why, why does that matter in a way? There are already studies based not on models but on observations that show that some regions in the Amazon are now behaving as carbon sources instead of carbon sinks. A carbon sink is just something that accumulates and stores carbon. The forests, in particular these tropical forests, are able to capture important amounts of carbon. So if they change, because there are studies that show savanization, which, which means that the, these big forests are becoming more savanna-like environments, then this vegetation is not able to capture the same amount. So that's why you have increases in CO2 concentrations, for instance, in the atmosphere. This is extremely important because we need the forested areas of the world to lock up carbon that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And without forests, less carbon dioxide will be removed from the air and that'll warm up our planet even more. If the, the monsoon is starting later, there's more likelihood of fires. Some parts of the forest are becoming more like savannas. What does the future of the Amazon then look like? How much could it change? 
So there are studies actually that talk about tipping points, for instance, in the Amazon. Uh, some studies start showing that if the threshold of deforestation in the Amazon increases over a certain value, then we could stop a, a change of regime in the Amazon. So basically this means a permanent shift from tropical rainforest to drier woodland or savanna areas. And so the wet still gets wetter in terms of the big rains when they come, but the bigger change in the South American monsoon is that the dry gets even drier. Like there's a change in the pattern that flips the balance to more drought. It's happening in the present. I mean, it's not something that we have to start thinking like in the year 2100, right? Like, no, it is something that is already happening. The increases in fires, the longer duration of the dry season, and it's because of the combination of these climate change aspects, but also land use. Changes in land use are really important for understanding how the water cycle is impacted by human activity. Earlier, Krishnan was explaining about the counteractive effect of aerosol emissions from pollution caused by industrial activity and transport in large cities. Here, Paula's talking about how deforestation for agriculture also has major impacts on the water cycle. In South America particularly, or in general in Latin America, of course there are contributions of emissions due to fossil fuel burning, but most of the contributions come from land use. A huge proportion of the Amazon deforestation is, is related to the growing of soya, soy, and that is used later to feed different animals that then are going to be consumed by humans. And many of these animals are not even located in, in South America. They are located in China, in Europe. So you can really see that this is how the Amazon and the forest becomes meat at the end. Okay, so Paola's talking about this deforestation in the Amazon that's having all these effects. Like there's growing soy, there's increasing economic growth, there's feeding cattle, which feeds people. But of course, that's also displacing and dispossessing people, increasing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing habitat and biodiversity. And it's also influencing rainfall patterns in the region. Right, yeah. So this episode is about the water cycle. So that's the part that we're going to really home in on here, which is what effect this deforestation is having on the water cycle. Okay, so one of Paola's papers that was referenced in the IPCC was this one where she looked at the effect of Amazon deforestation on rainfall. So what we did was that we use a model. You are following the particle and seeing where it originates and where this becomes rainfall. So basically they used a model to track changes in water vapour transport in the Amazon under two deforestation scenarios. One where there's a similar level of land cover in the Amazon as there is today, and another where deforestation continues at the current pace. So they're looking at condensation that's forming in the Amazon, and then where does it move to before it falls? Yeah, exactly. Sort of sinks and sources of these different water vapour particles. So you have two different land covers that gives you different wind circulation, different water vapour. And what we found is that during the deforestation scenario, you have a reduction of moisture recycling. When I say moisture recycling is the moisture that evaporates from the Amazon and precipitates in the Amazon. So it is like water that the Amazon itself is producing. Some studies show that that could be like 30, 40, even 50% of the precipitation in the Amazon is originated in the Amazon. 
So we found that a, a reduction in this Amazon moisture recycling, but also reductions in the transport from the Amazon to, toward our region, that is Northern South America. And that is only considering deforestation. This paper was only looking at deforestation, as Paola says, not the impact of greenhouse gases as well. But when you do add in the impact of hotter temperatures from increasing levels of greenhouse gases, it creates warming feedback loops that reduce moisture recycling, which in turn alter the water cycle. So this just goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how the dry gets drier. So as human-caused climate change continues, we are likely to see longer dry seasons, drier soils, more fires and less rainforest covering the Amazon basin. And this will lead to a shift from tropical rainforest into a drier state as the planet continues to warm. So it's a really significant thing to understand those interactions between the land surface changes and climate change. So Joel Krishnan was talking about all those comments and the spreadsheet and, and how it nearly broke him, but that was kind of midway through the process of writing this chapter. So what was it like putting together the final version? The final stretch was really hard. We were like 15 people involved in the chapter, but of course, like in every type of work, not everyone does the same amount of work. I mean, this happens everywhere and the IPCC is not the exception. So at the end we saw, okay, so is this topic, I don't know about it, but I will have to start doing something about this. So so we had to start doing the literature review and building the, the assessment. So yes, of course, the last part was very, very, very intense. I remember someone uploaded a zero kilobyte file as our master document just a few hours out from our final Such deadline. a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. And it ended up just being a formatting issue and we were able to resolve it once the person who saved the file was awake again. But it was a very stressful few hours to have to consider redoing edits at the 11th hour. I nearly had a heart attack. And... How did you feel when it was done, when you pressed send? Immense relief. I was actually the last person to make the final changes on our chapter before meeting this final government draft deadline of midnight on Friday the 12th of March in 2021. And I uploaded the very final touches to version 92 of our chapter at 11.48pm Paris time, which was close to 10am on Saturday morning in Canberra version 92. It was insane and that was only really on the very last version. This was just for that particular version of the document. We'd all been rushing and rushing towards this endpoint and then I had done the final upload and I just thought surely there has to be something more you know we've, we've got to sort of mark the moment in some way but a lot of the people were asleep because it was their time zone was out the western time zone that was awake and so I thought I'm going to write an email to the group and just say guys I can't believe what we just done I was sitting up in bed just on my laptop just tapping away and I just remember saying guys this is amazing we can't feel it right now but one day we'll look back at this moment as something that we did we had contributed something really important to humanity at this really critical moment in time. And and I, th- I think for me as well, it was this sort of moment where you realise there's just so much altruism out there in the global scientific community and in the world at large, of course. But for me, that IPCC experience it was just how people will go above and beyond the call of duty when it really matters. Mm. I can really imagine the release and kind of catharsis. I've been working on it for years. And then it was gone. So, Joelle, in this episode on the, the water cycle and, and climate change, 
for me, the thing that really sticks in my mind is this phrase, the wet gets wetter and the dry gets drier. Yeah, that's basically the take-home message of our chapter that looked at just really that intensification of things like droughts and floods. But also in this episode, we talked about how these existing problems of things like land use and pollution also interact with climate change to, to create these changes in our rainfall patterns. And the other thing that I suppose I just, that strikes me is to give people a, you know, reminder of why it matters. Like it's this extraordinary mm. substance water, right? Like it's kind of, it's a miracle water. <laughs> yeah, and it's essential. Without it, society couldn't function and ecosystems couldn't function. And given that water is vital to all life on Earth, understanding how it moves around the planet is absolutely critical to understanding the impacts of climate change. Next episode on Fear and Wonder, we're investigating the species that are on the move, responding to the warming planet. We've got some extraordinary stories and sounds from fisheries in the north and south of our planet, like the lake ice that we're listening to as it's forming in Finland. Fear and Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr Joel Gerges from the Australian National University with sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Chia. Script editing by Nicole Kirby. Thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark, and the conversations editor, Misha Ketchell. Fear and Wonder is sponsored by the Climate Council. We recorded on Wurundjeri land at the State Library of Victoria. And finally, Joelle wrote about her experience as an IPCC author in her new book, which is called Humanity's Moment a climate scientist's case for hope. So go find it online or in any good bookstore. Radiothon is coming up soon. If you are a regular listener to the Climate Action Show, you will have heard me bringing you stories of campaigns and elections and films and books, all urging us to take climate action over the last 12 years. It used to be a big team with many people behind the scenes, plus on air. Carly and Kurt, Erin, Kay, Michael, Natalie, Nick and Matthew. But now it's just me, broadcasting from Sydney. I had to do it remotely during COVID and now that's the reality. It's just me. I will be delighted when you phone in a donation to keep 3CR going. The phone number is Melbourne 03 94198377 and you can give money online as well by going to 3CR Radiothon. <clears throat> I will read your names out on air in June if you give us some money and it will also give me the courage to know you want us to carry on. Even better, if you would like to be a presenter and join us in creating stories about climate action, please contact 3CR on 03 9419 They'll train you, and I'm happy to mentor anyone into doing this interview work. It certainly keeps my spirits up. Meanwhile, stay tuned and stay radical. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart. 
which 3CR Community Radio is, right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Thanks tonight to you, listeners, for hanging in there to ideas that many people do not want to hear. And thanks to Carissa Licciardello and David Finnegan, the play Scenes from the Climate Era is on in Sydney from May 27th to June 27th. And thank you to Michael Green and Joel Gerges for episode four of their wonderful podcast series, Fear and Wonder, and to the scientists they spoke to. Thank you also to The Conversation, who gave me permission to broadcast their work. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.